Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Chain, 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 chain of fools who don't listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast every week. I want to thank my friend Aretha Franklin for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. It is the only Wicked Good podcast out there, and it is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. And if you were to give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. I think you win that trade every time. Happy New Year's. This is coming out January 1st, 2021. I feel pretty confident that this year is going to be better than the last year. But one last thing, uh, before we get rolling, follow us on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. It is a lot of fun. Good conversation. Good questions going on. Results. Dancing in skajias. Free parking. Whatever you want. Also, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, uh, just put in the name John McAdam. Follow the guys fighting with chairs. I don't always stick to wrestling, but I usually do. With that, let's bring in 2021 with Steve Generali. Steve, thank you for coming back. How are you? John, I'm doing well, and thank you so much for inviting me back. It's great to start a new year with you. Thank you so much. And we are going to base this podcast around Steve's website, which is called armchairwrestler.com. And on it, he has a list of all of the WWF MVPs from the 70s and 80s. We're not going to go through every year. We're going to stick to the Bob Backlund era, 1978 through 1983. Steve, I got to ask, like, I'm looking at the 1985 WWF MVPs. Number one is Hulk Hogan. Uh, he doesn't have, he doesn't get points, but Hulk, Paul Orndorff got points. He got 1,625 points. Piper got 1,408. Well, how'd you come up with these numbers? Well, uh, actually, I, I really wanted to do a deep dive on the history of WWE because it seems when you go to any website, it talks about, you know, John Cena. It talks about wrestlers from the past five or 10 years. So my interest is the 70s and the 80s. I really wanted to dig deep and find out, you know, really go through the numbers. So what I did was I went to uh, an excellent website, which you mentioned a few times on the show, the history of WWE.com, which uh, Richard Land and Graham Cawthorn will give them credit for that. Uh, on that very good site for, for each year of the WWF, they have um, a listing of all the cards from each year. So I had a lot of free time in my hands, and I got a, this big, thick notebook, and I went in from uh, for each year from January 1st all the way to the end of the year, and I tabulated points for wrestlers on each card. And, and this is uh, not uh, too different from what Al Getz does on his site, but basically this is what I did. So for the main event of a WWF house show, the wrestlers who were in the main event would get 10 points. For the wrestlers who would be in the semifinal match, each of those wrestlers would get seven points. So the idea of this is you're rewarding them for their place on the card. Um, I would give five points to wrestlers and maybe the third most important match, which oftentimes was a tag team match. So you, you put those points for every card, you add up the year, and that's how we ended up to the numbers that you're referring to. All right. So a well-deserved shout-out to Richard and Graham, who do an excellent job on that site. So, yeah, let's talk about 1978, and that is the first year Bob Backlund became world champion, February 20th, 1978, won from superstar Billy Graham. Steve, who did you have as the top five? 
My top five that year were back on this world champion, of course. He was champion for most of the year. The guy he beat, Superstar Graham, who was champ for the first couple of months, and then he remained a top challenger for most of the rest of the year. It was very active. Uh, Peter Maivia, who was uh, one of the top challengers for Backland. Uh, Spiros Arion, who was a challenger to Backland and uh, was around a lot of other you know, main event matches. Uh, and uh, Dino Bravo as well, who uh, got a strong baby face push, kind of uh, just entering the prime of his career. Yeah, I agree with that. And Dusty Rhodes, who is only in the promotion part-time, is number six, which I find interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and that's one thing I want to clarify. Um, as I was going through this whole process, and um, we'll go back to 1975, this is where I, I kind of learned that my attempt at making a, a numbers-based WWF rating thing was a little bit off-kilter. You can't really do it strictly by the numbers, I found. Because I'll give you, a, for instance, in 1980, Ken Patera showed up like the first week of the year they were doing a TV taping, and he wrestled most of the year in the WWF. So that kind of a or, organic thing where he starts with a promotion in January and maybe wraps up in December, that's the most perfect way to be able to give somebody points for all their contributions. But as I found out, you know, a lot of the wrestlers didn't do it that way. We use uh, Billy Graham as an example. 1975, he comes in and he's just a ball of thunder. He's maybe one of the biggest things that ever happened to the WWF, his arrival and his challenge against Bruno. But the thing is, he only wrestled the last few months of the year. So if you went by my system and the points, and he wouldn't even make the top 10 for that year. So the thing I, I soon realized is I had to kind of skew or adjust the ratings of these wrestlers. So what I decided to do is this for the point system, I would give those points for all the cards would would weigh as two-thirds of, of their scoring for the year. But the other third, I, I kind of created a category called uh, impact or value to TV. So the people that really were the, the people who made an impact or most memorable from TV and angles and interviews. So people like Dusty Rhodes, who made a huge impact in 1978 on the WWF, even though he wasn't maybe big in house shows and didn't tour as much, that's why he only got 440 points, because he really wasn't a huge factor on the tour, uh, but he was a huge factor on TV. So I had to kind of adjust his points in that way. Okay, that makes perfect sense. You know, and that that's something... That, you know, as I was going over my MVPs for the year, like Greg Valentine got hurt kind of bad because his run, he came in, oh, towards the end of the summer, early fall in 1981, he came back. And by the time he started feuding with Pedro Morales, I'm pretty sure it was the first TV of 1982. And he was still going around wrestling Bob Backlund. So, you know, that hurt him. The fact that, you know, he was half one year, half the other. Yeah, absolutely. That that can really. If you're just going by the numbers, it would really kind of skew their numbers in a bad way. Uh, so uh, that this little filter I added in based on impact and angles and interviews, uh, at least that's going to maybe help balance things out. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, Al Getz, shout out to Al, uh, does them quarterly, but that's probably not going to save us either because that's just the the way that the old WWF was. The heels would come in. They'd show up at, at the tapings, and six weeks later, they would start on the road full-time, usually at Madison Square Garden, and six, seven months later, they were done. Right. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more on that. <laughs> All right. So 
without subjectively taking out the point system, who would have been your number one for 1978, the most valuable player in the WWF? Well, the way I did it throughout this whole format, I really let the champion be the number one person because, you know, and you would, I think you would agree with me. It's really hard to argue against uh, Bruno or Backlund or even Hulk Hogan when he came in. The champion is always really the most important person, at least in my opinion. But if you wanted to go with a runner-up, I guess it would be Billy Graham, just because he was uh, very colorful and um, still very active. You know, he did team up with his uh, brother, Luke Graham, the Golden Graham's tag team. And he, he was all over the place. He, I mean, he did a ton of jobs, but people, you know, were still in that, you know, we love, we love him or we love to hate him. And uh, he was still a major player that year. I had superstar Billy Graham subjectively as number two as well. He was the champion for the first uh, seven or eight weeks of the year. That's still a really big deal. And then he goes around main eventing against Bob Backlund two or three times in every major arena in the WWF. I mean, he was around, I want to say, until October. So even if he wasn't the champion coming in, like that's still a lengthy run. And you're right. They mixed it up by bringing in a very making a very odd couple of superstar Billy Graham and crazy Luke Graham. Yeah, yeah that was that was a real weird offbeat team. And one of the few times that they really kind of created a push tag team without them getting the, the titles for any point in time, they didn't win the titles at all. And and I mean, Billy stuck around so long that he even did a job for Bruno, who came back after he was away for close to a year. Yeah. And then and then he was gone, and then he was in Memphis wrestling Jerry Lawler. So uh, that was it for Billy. Yeah, uh, that was that was a really weird time. That Billy Graham disappearance when he was wrestled a handful of matches between leaving the WWF in '78 and coming back in 1982. Yeah, it was a, a very. Uh, Difficult time for him, to say the least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we, I guess we will leave it at that. One <laughs> thing I noticed, we brought up Bruno. When Bob Backlund won the title, I should have checked the results of this, but it really felt like Bruno disappeared right after. Uh, superstar Billy Graham defended against Bruno in Philadelphia in a cage match on February 18th, 1978, and Backlund won the title two nights at Madison Square Garden. And Bruno kind of disappeared until like October. And uh, I can't help but think that they did that on purpose. No, I, I, I agree with that. That only made sense having Bruno around. Uh, and, you know, there is that urban legend about that cage match that was two days before the Backlund win that uh, supposedly Billy Graham planted a seed in Bruno's head or, or Bruno supposedly uh talked with Billy about, you know, maybe maybe you should go through the cage, Bruno. Maybe you should win the title back. That way this punk kid won't get the title. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's just kind of an urban legend or one of the Billy Graham stories, but it's kind of an interesting story nonetheless. You know what? I mean, had they tried something like that, you know, man, I mean, they would have just buried the result. That's all. They would have gone on Philadelphia TV and said, no, the title can't change hands like that. And no one else besides the ten or 15,000 people in the spectrum would have known about it anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, the bottom line is Bruno wanted out. I mean, if you really wanted to stay champion, he, he would have stayed champion. And, right. And, and, and for the most part, he went to Puerto Rico. He wrestled very, like, I probably went on vacation. He wrestled Monsoon in Puerto Rico, and they exchanged championships in Puerto Rico uh, during a brief time in 78. 
And then Monsoon went, and, and Monsoon actually had some championship matches against Backlund in Toronto, which is very bizarre. So that, yeah, I, I wonder how those were set up. If Monsoon just went to Toronto and played heel on television, I, he did it in Puerto Rico. Yeah, he, he actually, from what I, what I remember reading, he actually uh, had a match with Danucci on TV and just squashed Danucci like in probably like a minute or less. And then uh, set up a big uh, showdown with him and uh, Backlund. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a weird uh, concept, but uh, maybe they just wanted to do everything within their power to put over Backlund as this unbeatable, you know, human uh, dynamo. Yeah, I mean, Monsoon is an interesting guy, like around the mid to late 70s in the WWF. You know, he would only make special appearances. But when he was on TV, like you knew he was someone important, but you just didn't know what he was. But you knew he just wasn't another wrestler. Yeah, I've seen a lot of footage lately on some different sites where he is, uh, he's kind of like almost this authority figure back then, like almost like a, not a commissioner. I mean, they had Willie Gilsenberg do that, but he was kind of like this know-it-all <laughs> come on and tell you about the, you know, the tag team championship and how the kangaroos got knocked out and, uh, you know, kind of kayfabing uh, what was going on. But uh, he was always an interesting voice of authority. You know, I remember, I mean, Monsoon was something else. They did the uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Pat Patterson, Cobra Clutch Challenge mm-hmm. on TV. And, you know, obviously Slaughter attacks Patterson and won't let go. And they've got Martel Danucci and Tony Gurria in the ring. Three guys trying to pull Sergeant Slaughter off, and they can't mm-hmm. do it. Danucci <laughs> has a chair. He's hitting Slaughter with a chair, and he can't do it. And Monsoon, this, you know, kind of heavyset old man rolls out there and ragdolls Sergeant Slaughter. It was too much. <laughs> yeah, he ran the TV, so anything he said goes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who would be your number three in the MVP race for 1978, subjectively? Subjectively, well, looking at the numbers, I gave it on paper to Maivia because of his, um, you know, kind of the really mainly the feud he had with Backlund, which was an important feud. And um, it was kind of like his last major run anywhere. I mean, yeah. after this, he kind of um, he wrestled a little bit in other places, but he went back home and he promoted and then he got sick and he passed away. But, but he had a you know major run in the WWF here and. Uh, Made, I'm sure he made some uh, really good cash working at MSG and the other big buildings. Uh, Russell Bruno in Boston. Uh, so I probably would put my V as my uh, number three uh, person that year. I could see I had my V at five and there's really not much separating three and five. I have said this on the show before, Steve. I mean, you and I are basically the same age. We were watching the same thing. I was the dummy who did not see Peter Maivia's turn coming at all until (laughs) the match started uh, with he and Backlund against Spiros Arion and Victor Rivera. I mean, he grows the Bond villain mustache. (laughs) He's teaming with Backlund for apparently no reason. And I'm somehow surprised by it. Like, as this is going on, like, I can't believe my eyes. Well, uh, I'll I'll give you props because... I think you started watching WWF a few months before I did, and I started in uh, May of 76, and I think you started a few months earlier. I was still too new to figure things like that out, too. I, I wasn't expecting what happened to happen, but but at the time, I was probably cheering. I was rooting for my via to do a number on Backlund. I thought Backlund was so kind of too pure, too goody-goody two-shoes, and just didn't seem like the right fit to be champion, but 
he he grew on me over time. I knew I knew. Um, I mean, he was really a very good wrestler, and so he had credibility in, in a certain way. I, I was neither cheering nor booing, and my jaw was hitting the floor. I was in New York. <laughs> I, I, forgive me. I told the story on the show before. I was in New York, so the show was on at midnight. I'm 13. It's way past my bedtime now. This is happening at like you know 12:55. Right. And I couldn't go to sleep. I was that jazzed out by seeing my first WWF turn and it, it totally took me by surprise. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember that match specifically because, uh, uh, you know, Arian looked very old and slow in that match, but, uh, Victor Rivera really lit up backland with all kinds of shots and, and, and backland sold for, uh, Rivera, like a million bucks. And of course that didn't really, I think they had one match at the spectrum, Victor Rivera against uh, backland that didn't really pan out. But, uh, yeah, my view against backland was, decent box office the match quality probably wasn't that good i mean i saw one in binghamton that was okay but uh it's i think we discussed maybe on another show those msg matches with my v against backland for whatever reason have never seen the light of day no and i i think that's just a coincidence i mean i think they all aired on msg network or hbo whatever they were airing on at the time and mm-hmm. yeah i it's just one of those weird random things who knows Maybe they'll show up someday if the WWF is sitting on them. I, I, this is another thing I've said before. They need to release that stuff while the people who will appreciate it and enjoy it are still around. Absolutely. I had Ivan Koloff, number three, in 1978 just because, to me, he was a superstar heel. He was an elite heel. He had just come off the 1975-1976 run against Bruno San Martino. He was a former WWF champion, and he comes in and he puts Bob Backlund over. And to me, that's one of the top things you have to do back then, getting a new champion like Backlund over, is start feeding him the top guys. Yeah, and they they really did that, too. I mean, all of the old Bruno opponents came in... uh... I mean, you can just name them one after another, uh, Billy Graham, Koloff, Arion, Ernie Ladd, even Patera. They all did jobs for Backlund to kind of put him over as a big thing. And and then uh, this this Maivia Backlund feud was really Backlund's first thing on his own. Uh, you know, not just beating Bruno's guys to look good, but starting his own feud. And uh, And he did really well from that point forward. Yeah, I mean, we had, it, it was kind of strange, we had layovers of guys who were either had challenged Bruno or were about to challenge Bruno before he lost the title. Um, let me see. George Steele had just come in when Bruno lost the title. Ditto Spiros Arion had just come back. And Ken Patera, like, stayed the whole time Graham was champion. Yeah, Ken Patera has so much ability then. And I, I would say that from probably 1976 to about 81, I would put Patera in the probably... Uh, I don't know about top five workers in the U.S., but, you know, probably top five, top ten in North America. He was so good back then. He was not only really good in the ring, but he had the it factor. Like, his his interviews weren't like Ric Flair's. Like, they were. he, he was just a really naturally arrogant guy. I've said it before. I mean, from the time frame you talked about, like, 76 through 81 when he walked out of Georgia— I mean, I really, th- I thought he was going to come back and win the WWF championship in like 81, 82. I thought he could have been the NWA champion around that time. Like that's high praise for me. Oh, oh yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and, and a funny thing that, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard anybody else really say, but 
I remember being really disappointed watching uh, World's Strongest Man on CBS and uh, uh, seeing Billy Graham, who was one of my heroes from wrestling. He just seemed like a completely different person when he was on. I thought that Billy Graham would be on World's Strongest Man and bring the jive and bring the talk and the hype and everything. And I thought he would be, you know, maybe break into being a crossover celebrity. But he just seemed like he was so out of it and so distant and cold. And Ken Batera, on the other hand, when he was on World's Strongest Man, he was he was dynamite. I mean, he was not only was he doing fantastic with all these power man stunts, you know, throwing the tires and carrying uh, the huge beer containers over his head. Uh, he just was phenomenal on that show. But he also was trash talking and you know better than anybody on the whole show. He was awesome. I, I remember watching that as it aired. And I definitely remember appreciating Ken Patera's charisma. I'm like, you know, 12 years old watching this. But then I see him like chumming around with Lou Ferrigno, like, you know, not being a heel, being buddies with the guy. I'm like, hey, what's this? <laughs> yeah, I guess he broke kayfabe there. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, coincidentally, while his name is up, I had Ken Patera at number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, just a an elite heel going in having the match at Madison Square Garden and, and doing the right thing, putting Backlund over clean. Right. All right. Yeah, so who is your, I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, no, I, I was going to say my, my next one on my list would probably be Dusty only because he was, um, like I said earlier, he didn't really work a ton of dates that year, but, but God, he was over incredibly over. And um, I think the promotion felt very strongly about him too, because uh, I'm sure you would remember this, John, uh, one of the only times uh, Blassie took a bump, they did this little thing where Dusty came out and, and Albano and Blassie were trying to, going to try to corner him and do a number on him. And he just like uh, laid about eight bionic elbows into each one of them. And they're both taking these bumps all over the ring for uh, Dusty. And I mean, you didn't see that ever with any other challenger. And it was really interesting to see that. I had only been watching for about a year and a half when that happened, maybe a little more than that. No, about a year and a half. And I was blown away because, I mean, I'd seen Albano take plenty of bumps. Blassie would dish out punishment, but he would never take any punishment except for this one time. That's the right. The time he was the manager, you know, Dusty knocked him on his keister. Yeah, it, it was amazing. So uh, it just shows you the power of that run that Dusty had. I mean, it, everybody put him over. No, I mean, he had never been on uh, WWF TV before. And within a couple of months, he's main eventing a three-match series against superstar Billy Graham in the, at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and, and the thing about it, too, is, like, if you if you listen to Vince's voice when he would talk about Dusty at that time, like, like if, like I say, if Vince was standing on the apron at MSG and Dusty's coming out to wrestle Billy Graham and, and you know, Vince's voice changes and he's getting all, like... Uh, funky like a monkey and he's getting all crazy and it's like here he is dusty Rhodes." and you know you never heard that from vince before you know vince was never like that before but but apparently that was his kind of a wrestler yeah him and billy graham were the kind of wrestlers he wanted to promote and of course he did with hogan and the rest oh absolutely i mean i remember when that series happened i mean i knew who dusty Rhodes was through the magazines and it felt like, and, and this is based on a lot of things, but maybe number one magazine covers and, you know, mm-hmm. superstar Billy Graham got on a lot of covers as did Dusty Rhodes. Like I saw it as the number one good guy against the number one bad guy. Right. It was just a, a marriage made in heaven. And, and like you said, I mean, with the magazines, I mean, I, I, 
I can remember how huge, uh, apparently, they had a huge feud in Florida, Dusty and, and Billy in 76. Uh-huh. And then when Billy wins the title in 77, and then Dusty comes up, and those matches are on HBO, which I was lucky enough to have. And, like, you know, the, the garden just popped. I mean, when Dusty came out, the people were going crazy. And uh, But, you know, a lot of people in New York had Florida wrestling, so they, they were not only just knew him from the magazines, but they saw him on Florida wrestling, too. So it was just uh, a match made in heaven. I never thought of that, but that's right. I mean, when I was in Queens, I tried like crazy to get channel. I think it was 41 or 47, and I couldn't even get like the weakest signal. But you're right. I know a lot of people in New York watched that show. I, I never thought of that before. You know, and it's funny. And I just read this earlier today. I can't remember what slide I was on when I read it. but And I didn't know this until today, but they basically said that during some of the MSG shows, the ring announcer, I guess it was Finkel or whoever was before Finkel, said, um, like, in between matches, he would just say, and, and folks, don't forget to watch Florida Wrestling at 10 p.m. on such and such channel on Tuesday night. And and, uh, and I, I couldn't believe that they did that at MSG, you know, considering it was NWA. And I mean, I know when, back in those days there was harmony between the promotions, but um, apparently they really did that. I mean, I didn't even know they would do it to say, hey, watch WOR, WWF on midnight on Saturday night. I didn't know they did that. But Well, you're right. I mean, you used the word harmony between the promotions. That's exactly what was going on. I mean, it's like, you know, that line from The Godfather, as long as what you're doing does not conflict with what we're doing, we're fine. <laughs> you know, right. But and that's the thing. I mean, why would the WWF care if, you know, yeah, the wrestling fans watch the Florida show. Well, except for the fact that the Florida show blew the WWF show away, let's be honest. <laughs> so who is your number five for 1978? Well, I guess um, I'll just I'll, uh, I'll be a wimp and I'll just call a tie. I'll probably put a tie between uh, Strongbow and Bravo. Uh, Strongbow was like the people's champion. He was always involved in TV angles and, and the King of the Beast shows, the house shows. Bravo, on the other hand, was just very, very impressive in the ring. I mean, when you saw him in that era, you could have thought that he could have been the guy to replace Backlund uh, because he had the kind of the a little bit of the Bruno Italian ethnic thing, and and he had the speed and the drop kicks and the power and the you know just a total package as a, as a wrestler, not the not the slow um, uh, mobile. Uh, Barney Rubble that he would be about 10 years later in WWF. <laughs> so, so those are those two that I would give credit to. I think they did a really good job pushing Bravo in 78 by making him the strong man on the team, the Bravo and Danucci team that eventually won the WWF tag team titles. I'm very surprised. I was always very surprised that they never brought him back during the Backland era because, I mean, he was over the first time around and it's not like he was you know, winning the NWA title or anything. Yeah, he could he could have definitely come back. You know, uh, I know uh, Martel in 81, he came in and the martel Gria tag team, that could, could definitely have been the bravo Gria tag team instead. But yes, you know, Martel did a great job with that role. So um, no complaints there. No, definitely not. Uh, Martel was excellent. I always liked Martel a little more than Bravo. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Dino Bravo, if, if you only know him, and I was, I was speaking to the, the listeners here, from his late 80s, early 90s run in the WWF, he was a completely different guy in 1978. Yeah, he, he was completely different. And really, he, there's, I don't think there's anything he couldn't do. And and I, I always kind of felt bad reading uh, Bret Hart's book. Uh, he mentioned uh, 
something about the two of them wrestling. I don't know if it was in Italy or a different country. And, and he was saying that Dino was reckless and he hurt Brett and this and that. And, and he basically said that he was really, you know, a crappy worker, terrible worker. And I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, you know, 10 years earlier, Dino Bravo was fantastic. I, it's, I know, you know, he had probably had age and injuries and the steroids and this and that, but it's a shame how his, you know, the way he looked at him had really dropped off the face of the earth, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, Brett suffered, I think it was a broken, a cracked sternum or a broken sternum, mm. and he couldn't talk because of the injury, so Bravo just keeps pounding on him, and Brett's wow. trying to roll out of the ring, and Dino's throwing him back in the ring. It was, it was tough to watch. Yeah, that's just a really unfortunate incident. But yeah, like I said, I, I get it though. It's like it's Brett that had to go through that. Well, mm-hmm. on to 1979, you have, based on your point system, you've got Bob Backlund at number one, Ivan Putski at number two, Greg Valentine at number three, Pat Patterson at number four, and Ted DiBiase at number five. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think Putski got number two mainly because of the house show matches. I think he had a ton of house show matches with Koloff and Sometimes and some other people, and uh, that's probably how he amassed such a huge amount of points. Uh, Valentine and Patterson uh, are were two of the major challengers to back on, so they're they rank very very highly. And the DiBiase, who I thought was phenomenal in 1979, he was number five. Comparing him to uh, the Million Dollar Man in '87 oh, wow. and beyond, because at least in '79 he was just you know kind of this pure wrestler, and and he he hadn't. You know, he had a long way to go to really his full potential, but, you know, a lot of the, the greatness of DiBiase was already there. I mean, he held some of the psychology down. Yeah, I mean, when he got to, you know, a ton better than he was here, but when he got to be Million Dollar Man, I thought it was just too much, you know, paint by the numbers and phone it in. And, I mean, he doesn't, it wasn't the same as the DiBiase from before. No, definitely. I mean, he was going by a script as, as the million dollar man, as opposed to just, you know, letting it all hang out like BWF mid South, et cetera. Right. Right. You know, I had for 1979, let me throw this in really quick are ineligible because mm-hmm. that would really screw everything up because <laughs> every year, like Albano Blasium wizard would have to be top five. Mm-hmm. Number two, I have tag teams are eligible as the tag team, not individually. Right. And I just wanted to throw in a quick comment. I never know what to do with Andre the Giant. I never know how to rank him. He's such a, a wild card in there. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, that really, again, I when I did this whole process and I was doing year after year after year, and I, I actually did this a few years ago. This wasn't anything recently, but when I did that whole process, I, I learned a lot about different wrestling towns of the WWF, and Andre was one. I mean, I never really knew how much... Uh, you know, impact he had in the WWF or, you know, how many matches did he wrestle? And I guess, uh, you know, looking back, I think, I think I learned that he really wrestled for them less than I imagined he did. He did. I mean, I saw him locally in Binghamton, my hometown. I saw, I saw he did other dates, the territory, but it wasn't like he was there for like long periods and stretches of time. It was more like, you know, he'd be here for a couple of months and he'd be gone maybe come back a couple months near the end of the year. And, and, but he had so many places to be with all the other promotions that he was really a part of. So that's why he never really um, sustained or gained a huge amount of points with my system or even your system. So he's, he's kind of, in this year, he's kind of like in the middle of the pack in 1979. And plus, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about this later. 
he did not have, you know, we're in 1979 and, you know, let's go in the time machine. You and I are talking. We're saying, hey, Andre has not had a real opponent, a real program since Ernie Ladd in 1976. That's true. And I know like with this year, the kind of matches that they put him in were predominantly matches like it would be, uh, you know, him and uh, maybe uh, Putski and and even Backlund, the three of them against the Valiant Brothers, that would be like the standard match or, or have him against one of the Valiant Brothers and, you know, and he would just, you know, dominate and make it a comedy match. But uh, you're absolutely right. He he didn't really have a big program this year. He would against Hogan the following year and, of course, against Killer Khan in 81, too. But, yeah, Andre, I think, was so busy with the AWA and other territories that, you know, sometimes WWF, even though he was booked by Vince Sr. to go to all these territories, sometimes his home territory, he wasn't there as much as you would think. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously they had to share him with the other promotions. and. You know, this is something that might surprise a lot of people, but by this time, by around 1979, I was getting a little bit tired of Andre the Giant being on TV. Like, he would be on once every couple of months, and it would be the same match over and over again. It would be Andre, usually in a handicap match, against two or sometimes even three guys, and it would be no contest. He would just throw them around. There'd be comedy spots. And I would I would say by by the end of 1979 I was kind of like Andre, ugh. Yeah, I I think I have to agree, and I hate to say that, but I, I'm really in the same camp with you on that. He, I mean, he was you know very impressive size wise, and uh, and he could still do some impressive things physically then. But uh, yeah, those kind of matches were just just throwaways. I mean, uh, I think there was one uh, match he did maybe with the. Uh, um, Gypsy Rodriguez and Johnny Rods and one other guy, and they—I think they even replayed it a few times. But they just got old after a while. You knew he was great, but you know he's not going to wrestle anybody of any note. What's the what's the point? Yeah, I- I- exactly. And you know, I'm like you. Like I saw Andre in Nashua, and I, I looked at him, and I'm like, I don't know if he's really seven four. Thinking he's over seven feet, and he sucked up so much space. He really was a giant. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's funny in, in retrospect how he evolved or changed over the years, and, and sad too because he was so amazingly large in those early days when we saw him. I can remember back to seeing him in '88 against Duggan, I think '89 against uh, Jake Roberts. I saw him in, in Binghamton in the one match against Jake Roberts. You know, Jake Roberts is an extremely tall guy; he's like six six or six seven. And uh, Jake Roberts' father was a road agent for WWF at the time, Grizzly Smith. And Grizzly Smith is like 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, and there's Andre, who's, you know, withered and, you know, not as, you know, healthy as he was. And these guys are practically the same size he was by this point. So it was just kind of sad, you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Andre on TV, and I, I remember this. It was in 85. It was in early 85. And for whatever reason... Andre thought it would be fun to be wearing canary yellow trunks and boots. Right. And for whatever reason, this color brought out the worst in his look. And I was like, oh, my God, he's obese. That's his uh, WrestleMania 2 uh, outfit. Oh, that might have been it. Uh, I, I, th- I think it might have been right before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I was, that's like, oh, my God. You know, I finally just saw it. You know, it's like sometimes when that person puts on a pound a year or two pounds a year, they sneak up on you and you don't really realize, but like that made me realize that, 
Yeah, okay, he's not putting on a pound or two a year. He's he's gotten really fat. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just sad. And, and you know, he had a, a, that lifestyle that he was used to. You know, playing the cribbage. You know, drinking. Uh, you know, sixty bottles of wine and uh, <laughs> you know, four hundred beers. And you know, it was hard for him to move away from that. And, and unfortunately, time caught up to him after a while. Oh yeah, I mean, he was still wrestling in Japan a month before the month before he died. Yeah, just very sad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's some guys just can't get away from the lifestyle. Now, you had Backlund number one based on the numbers. I'm guessing you had him number one subjectively, and so did I. Yeah, you know, when I did this whole process, I, one thing I kind of decided early on was I didn't want to give points to the champion because I figured they're always going to be main eventing. It didn't really, you didn't really have to give them a number, so to speak. Right. But uh, yeah, Backlund, uh, you know, he was a champion for the entire year and he was really the face of the promotion. Um, you know, in, in that era, the, the champs really weren't on TV that much. I mean, they were on TV every week doing promos for MSG or the big arenas. But, you know, they only appeared for maybe a handful of angles or a handful of TV matches that were, for the most part, inconsequential. So, Right. And I had Backlund number one subjectively because this was the year it started to really feel like, okay, this promotion belongs to him. The opening montage of championship wrestling was nothing but Bob Backlund at this point. You know, the match at Madison Square Garden against Mr. Fuji, a couple of TV appearances. It's a minute of Bob Backlund, which tells you that, hey, he's the number one guy now. Mm-hmm. And it just things just seem to have calmed down a little bit. He's no longer the new champion. He's the champion. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. He he was starting to, to really hit his peak. I don't think he had, had hit his peak yet, but bringing in these challengers for him. I think, you know, he learned a lot from Patterson, who was such a great veteran star, and, and Pat taught him a lot uh, in their matches. And then the matches with Valentine, as you and I have talked about before, were just phenomenal matches and uh, some of the best WWF matches you can think of. So uh, it was really a strong year for Backlund. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Now, who did you have, according to the numbers, number two this year is Ivan Putski. Now, here's someone I wanted to talk about. Ivan Putski did not make it on my list any of the six years, and that surprised me at the end because he was such an important guy in the WWF. He'd be in and out of the territory. He'd be gone for like seven, eight months, and then he'd come back for a year and a half. Yeah, He was really important, and yet he just never made my top five. If it was a top six, he probably would have been on a couple of times. Yeah, you know, you're right. He, he's here basically just based on the numbers. Uh, he, he was somebody who was just a uh, king of the B shows, I guess you would say. He's, uh, you know, like my town, Binghamton. He, he'd he be there quite often. If Backlund couldn't make it, he'd be the headliner against a Koloff or a Patera. Usually those kind of uh, tight matches. And, uh, you know, when you look back on it, I mean, they didn't ever really do major, major angles with him. I mean, they did that one little gimmicky thing with Bulldog Brower where uh, Putski uh, got tripped and um, Brower got kind of a cheap win over him on TV. Um, but but they really did big angles with Putski. Um, but he was always a featured player, and, and apparently the promotion really liked him, even though I think uh, a lot of the guys, uh, apparently the guys were not too fond of him. They thought he was kind of a pain in the ass, but, but he, had, he had longevity in the WWF, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm like you. I mean, Putski, I remember fall of 82, he came to Nashua twice. You know, the junior high gym. He fought superstar Billy Graham, which is like, a, you know, 
childhood dream match. I mean, that was a main event at Madison Square Garden. And mm-hmm. then the next month, he was against Ray the Cripple Stevens, another legend. So, mm-hmm. and, and the place was packed both times, and he was in the main event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I know uh, a lot of these uh, these uh, <laughs> wrestling uh, fans that we deal with and talk to on the, on the uh, websites and stuff, they, uh, um, you know. Puts is not a favorite. He's, yeah, he's not a favorite, but but he was he, he definitely struck a chord with those fans. I mean, they were. I know Brian last likes to say, you know, where are the uh, where are the old people? Where are the kids? And you know, those uh, th- those types of fans really appealed. Uh, Pusky appealed to them, uh, and and he really was like a, when he would come out, and, and the people would really go crazy for him. Uh, I I always rooted for Koloff. I like the villains, but but uh, he had, he had a huge audience for himself. He really did. No, I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, I look, guys, we know he wasn't a good wrestler or a good in-ring performer. We know his gimmick could be kind of goofy. The construction worker guy who sings Bobby Vinton song after the <laughs> matches, but it worked. It's, it's, it's really that simple. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, where I'm from, uh, it was a heavy Italian, heavily Polish, uh, Czech area, a lot of, uh, people of European descent and, uh, Having him wrestle a Koloff, um, that that was just like bread and butter. I mean, people wanted to see that, you know, the the Polish good guy against the evil Russian. I mean, people just you know went right into the ethnic thing, so they they loved that. Well, I mean, same here. It was is very heavily Franco-American out here, but it didn't matter. It was Ivan Putski. Everyone was into him. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my question: Subjectively, would you have had Putski or someone else in that number two spot? Oh yeah, I, I would have had someone else. I probably would have had, um, probably would have had Patterson just because I thought that their matches were maybe the highest level of uh, WWF matches of the Backlund era so far. I mean, the Strongbow Valentine feud was a huge feud that year, and that was big box office, uh, you know, for a non-championship thing. So that would be probably close after that, but. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Patterson just was, you know, you, you really believed, like, here's this champion from the West Coast who has a great, you know, history, been big in the AWA, big in other promotions, San Francisco, and now he's here on the East Coast against the East Coast champion, Bob Backlund, and it really had that feel of it, of, of uh, and they did build it at the time as IC champion against world champion, and that kind of had a special feel to it. I also had Pat Patterson as number two. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had that phenomenal four-match series against Backlund at Madison Square Garden. He was the first time that the North American Championship changed hands on TV, so that made it feel like a little bit more of a real belt. And then, of course, we have the turn. This is the second turn I have seen in my life that I've been watching for four years now when Lou Albano had his split with, well, first the Grand Wizard sells Patterson's contract to Lou Albano, and then Patterson has the split with Albano. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. I, I mean, I, that again in the pre uh, pre observer era, you know, pre internet era, I, I had no idea that was coming. That just completely caught me off guard. And as you probably remember, that kicked off one of their episodes of the show. It was like right at the beginning of the show. Uh, I think it was Vince and Bruno were standing there, and Patterson said, "Like, I'm not going that fast, Lou Albano." <laughs> Something like yep. that. So he's a he's a fat slob and a bum. Two things you don't want to be. <laughs> exactly. So so it was. Uh, it, it, but that was that really caught me off guard that they turned him in. But he was a very very popular a fan favorite for uh, 
the next three or four years for sure. Yeah, yeah Patterson had a, a great run here. Who did you have? Now, subjectively, you had, let me see, I'm, I'm going back and forth between, all right, you had Greg Valentine points-wise as number three. Would you have had him subjectively as number three? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, he uh, was, you know, really, I would say in his prime, yeah, between his work here and in the Mid-Atlantic area, he was really, uh, you know, hitting his beginning of his peak period. And, um, you know, uh, he really uh, made that feud with Strongbow believable and exciting. And it was really Strongbow's last big thing that he did. I know he had the tag team run with his brother in 1982, but I'd like to forget about that uh, run, particular run. But uh, this one was a very exciting feud, and they had a lot of bloody matches and, and a lot of good box office in 79 for the company. So uh, it was definitely uh, good to have, uh, I think, Valentine in that three slot. Yeah, I actually had Greg Valentine at number four, which means that the 1979 was a pretty strong year at the top for the WWF. I mean, I remember I saw Valentine for the first time on TV with this, you know, absolutely gorgeous, like, royal blue robe with the silver sequins mm-hmm. and this is back when robes were cool everybody and he's out there with the grand wizard and he just looked the part of a star and then one time he he did an interview he was going up against bob backland and he's you know just like swaying his hair back and he's like bob i'm out here with my beautiful robe custom made and my perfect boots and you're out there in a bathrobe in those ugly low-cut boots what's the matter with you and i'm like this guy is so cool <laughs> so valentine uh, and i think you mentioned this on another show john he, he had this like artificial charisma he just uh <laughs> the artificial charisma was that robe of his and the thing with uh the, how simple tv was back then for wwf i mean if you look back to we'll go back to 76 with strombo and white wolf when those guys came out and they had their Indian headdresses on and they were, you know, kind of dancing around a little bit and Strongbow would do his trash talking of the opponents, the way the camera lights just hit their Indian headdresses, you really, you thought you were just seeing like these, like, I mean, it was like watching a comic book come to life. And, and I think same with Valentine and his fancy robe, it was like, you couldn't see people like this in any other walk of life. I mean, these guys were larger than life. So to pay, uh, you know, back in those days, the tickets were four or five and six dollars to go to the matches. So you felt you were just like being able to see these huge stars for such a cheap price. It was a great value. I mean, I think that's why I fell in love with it. It was like these are not cartoon characters. These are, these are real dudes. And they're they, like you said, they're larger than life. I've got these two Native American Indian guys, Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf, and they're fighting other dudes. It was crazy. But you mentioned the robes, the artificial charisma. Some guys could pull the robe off. Ric Flair, perfect example, a Mm -hmm. robe guy. Greg Valentine, another perfect example. When Paul Orndorff started wearing the robe in 83 when he came in as Mr. Wonderful, it felt very forced. I don't know what it was about it, but it felt very forced. When Terry Taylor turned heel in 87 and bought himself a flashy robe, it felt forced. So right. I guess it depends on the guy more than anything. Yeah, you know, and and uh, <laughs> I think it was on our on our uh, Facebook page there where uh, we saw pictures of Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA wearing full length mink coats. <laughs> so yes, that, that that's uh, another uh, version of what we're talking about. I mean, completely uh, mind blowing when you think back on it now. 
Can you imagine being Magnum TA's wife and seeing him spend that kind of money? He was married, by the way, spending that kind of money on a mink coat on the whim of Dusty Rhodes. But at the same time, it makes sense. You're kind of investing in keeping Dusty happy with you. Yeah, unbelievable. But again, it's it's the charisma. It's just this uh, watching these larger than life characters do things that uh, regular people, regular athletes even couldn't do. It was a magical world where if you whip the guy into the ropes, he would bounce back and he would not put up any defense for what you're going to do to him next. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where you, you as a fan watching, you never think about that. You just say, well, he, he threw him in the ropes. So where else is he going to go? He's got to come back. <laughs> uh, okay. Who'd you have now on the website? Number five, you had Ted DiBiase. Who would you have him there subjectively? I probably would have um I probably would have had Strongbow just because he had that major feud with Valentine. That was one of the major hot ticket items that year. So DBS he may slip down a little bit, but like I said, you know, give him credit for that year. Uh, for uh, a new guy in the scene, he really made a, a nice impact and there was a bunch of other new guys that year like Steve Travis and Freddie uh, Curry and some other ones, but uh, but DiBiase stood out from the pack. Tito Santana was in that group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, for number five, subjectively, I actually had the Valiant Brothers tag team because they got there at the end of '78. They were there the entire year of '79. I think Johnny and Jerry packed up in like November, but Jimmy stayed through a Madison Square Garden match where he lost to Lou Albano, and then we never saw him again. But it seemed like the Valiants. It, it almost seemed like they had a bigger role planned for the Valiants, like, you know, singles title matches, which they did in Philadelphia, but not really anywhere else. And, you know, they were in the middle of everything. I think we might have talked about this when I had you on a year ago. Like, I saw the Valiant Brothers on TV, and I was waiting for, like for the light to go on. Like, these guys looked so great in the magazines. Their run in 74, 75 seemed off the charts. And I was just like waiting for it to happen. And it, it kind of never did. Yeah. I, I kind of think that they just, by that point, they had lost their mojo. And, and I think as far as from a fan standpoint, I mean, and you and I started about the same time in 76, we saw Billy Graham as this larger than life, you know, phenomenal yeah. heel and the huge muscles and huge, this and that, you know, great gift of gab. When the Valiants came back in 79, they had a good gift of gab, and they had Captain Lou like they did the first time, but it just seemed like they were kind of go- going through the motions. They didn't really seem like, it just seemed like they lost their way. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and, and you're right. We did talk about that. Once you've seen superstar Billy Graham, the Valiants lose a little bit of their luster. You know, I mean, maybe it was it just was that simple, but I mean, they, I don't know. <laughs> it just never happened for them. True. It almost seemed like when the Samoans arrived, and by the way, I think they arrived like right after Thanksgiving 1979. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh boy, cool. A, a cool heel tag team that I can get into. Yeah, I just think, um, it, and maybe it was the health thing when Jimmy, I think when when they came in together, maybe they knew his, his health was kind of declining and that's where they, how Jerry Valiant had to come in and really do a lot of the matches. Yeah. So maybe, maybe they just were just kind of like, well, let's make the best of this. And, but it just was never meant to be. I mean, they, they did try to, you know, they had a lot of major matches that year, but as far as the execution and I think the results, as far as the fans go, the fans were a little let down by the whole thing. 
No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I also heard that Jimmy and Johnny did not like Jerry. And oh. if, if you're on the road together in close quarters with someone that you just don't like, I mean, you can't, you know, if, you, if you're not happy in real life, you're not going to come across as being happy on television. Yeah, that makes sense. One guy I wanted to bring up, and he was an honorable mention. And, um, you know, when Bobby Duncombe came back to the WWF, he was a guy I had only read about in magazines. I had seen the, the pictures of his matches against Bruno. The whole thing looked really good. And then he came back, and once again, like the Valiants, it just wasn't the same. I know Bob Bobby had a really bad knee at this point. But, I mean, I was actually, you know, when they announced Bobby Duncombe returns to the WWF, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. And it kind of wasn't. You know, uh, I, I remember I did get to see him wrestle a couple of times in Binghamton, and, and they did a little little local angle. Basically, they had him wrestle Monsoon, and his big, uh, Duncombe's big finisher was the Bulldog move. And he did a number on Monsoon and, uh, you know, looked very uh, decisive when he dunked him over Monsoon. The following month, they came back with Bobby Duncan against Backlund, and uh, Backlund uh, got him with the atomic drop like he did so many other opponents. But yeah, I, I guess uh, that's why they, they probably didn't give Duncan really like a multi-match series that they kind of felt like maybe he was starting to be on the decline. Yeah, I, he, he was. Like I said, I, I know his, his knees were bad. I didn't talk about my number three, Bruno Sammartino. Yeah, you know, Bruno had that big feud. Uh, well, I don't know if we'll say the big feud, the uh, you know, million sob for Bruno against Volkov. <laughs> you know, the uh, TV angle they did with him with the apples. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Bruno was a factor. I mean, he was on TV a lot as the announcer and uh, the gimmick with Volkov. But, you know, comparing to what happened next year with Zabisco, I mean, this was almost like a, I, I felt it was like a inconsequential year for Bruno. Well, you know what? That, here's the thing. A lot of the time, and I've talked about this on the show, when they had the big matches in the Boston Garden in 1979, it was Bruno Sammartino and not Bob Backlund who was main eventing. They did Bruno versus Peter Maivia early in the year, mm-hmm. and at the end of the year, they were doing Bruno versus Pat Patterson. And here's why that's important, okay? You can have a $100,000 house in the Boston Garden with Bruno on top. And then over in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, wherever, you can also have a $100,000 house on that Saturday with Bob Backlund as your champion. So basically, Bruno, I mean, I almost put him second because he was your license to print money. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, uh, and I, I, again, I've, I heard some other podcasts recently kind of uh, try to talk negatively about the Bruno era of wrestling, but... For those of us who lived through it and, and went to all the matches, uh, you know, I, I mean, I didn't get to see Bruno Russell live in person, but just from living and watching him on TV and the matches from MSG that I saw, uh, we didn't want that era to end. I mean, it was just phenomenal. I mean, it was just the best. Well, you, this was a guy that you were so invested in. And, and, yeah. and for those of us who were watching, we would never have a person to be that invested in again. I mean, for the kids that grew up with Hulk Hogan, that was great that they had this larger-than-life superhero to, you know, root for. But for us regular, normal people, you know, we saw Bruno as this, you know, working-class hero, and we were so invested in him, and we never wanted that year to end. And that's why when he came back against Piper and, and Savage, we were so, you know, excited, and the, he was still selling out. So it's just funny how, you know, if you're from a different area, you may not kind of get the whole Bruno thing. But for you and I, John, it was a very important part of our 
childhood and our uh, and our teenage years too. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, Hulk may have been larger than life, and that's fine. But Vince wanted, and that's what his his audience ultimately wanted. But Bruno was like, you know, he was the pro wrestling equivalent of Terry Bradshaw or Roger Staubach or Reggie Jackson. He was just, you know, the king. Right. He he, he was. And he just you, you you were so invested in him. I mean, people, were, you know, if, if he lost the match, people were like, oh, in their hearts and they were all upset. And, you know, you know, we didn't have other wrestlers that people resonated like that with. It just didn't happen. I mean, I know living in Florida, I mean, I know Dusty had that same effect on people here, but it was just slightly different in some ways. I don't think like people were uh, thinking about Bruno, like doing, um, you know, religious uh, novenas to him. Yeah. <laughs> Dusty, Dusty was a different kind of a love affair right? in a different way, I think. No, totally. I mean, Bruno, like you said, he was still selling out as obviously an older man, you know, up here in 86, you know, 86, 87. I kind of knew that I would get into an interesting conversation with Steve and that it would go longer than an hour. So what we're going to do is have part two of this show a week from today. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you hopefully to listen again next week. Before I go, I want to thank Chris Andrian, Alan Bletcher, Dan Gadera, and Ted Henschel for their generous donations to Stick to Wrestling. If you'd like to donate, we're at prowrestlingarchives@gmail.com. I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, who works hard on this show and makes it sound good. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Be safe. This concludes our podcast day.